0: You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Adam was created first from a little bit of soil, and the Lord God himself breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. So far, so good with the image bearer of the Almighty but the first thing God ever said was not good was that the first man, Adam, was alone. If anyone but God had said it, the typical trendy Christian literature response might be to say that Adam had his relationship with the Creator and that such should have been enough. But Adam's relationship with the good Lord was not enough as God saw it, and thus God made a helpmeet suitable for Adam. From then till now, I am convinced Most of the dysfunction in how we approach marriage has to do with our either not knowing or else underestimating or else actively rebelling against what Genesis says here about our origin story as a species. Proverbs tells us that the man who finds a wife finds a good thing, but what is a wife good for? How we approach and steward marriage goes a long way in our appreciating this in the way the author intended. To get an answer for how we should both approach and steward marriage, then, I propose we look closer at the origin story and how God made man in the beginning. Some might complain that we don't have a lot to go on there, but I disagree. Every detail and every nuance in the Genesis account is borne out in the rest of what we read in the Bible from cover to cover. And every feature here carries with it profound implications for understanding rightly not only the scriptures, but ourselves and one another rightly. When it says God created woman in a certain way at a certain time and for at least two apparent reasons, because it was not good for the man to be alone and because the woman was to be a helpmeet suitable for the man, we would be wise to lean in and listen close and see whether that bears out when we view this primary relationship in such simplified terms. For starters, should a man's wife not be the best antidote to his loneliness? God himself says that loneliness is not good. More than that, the loneliness of the first man is the very first thing he says is not good in all creation. But the remedy God provides to loneliness is found in marriage. We should be able to work backwards from that fact to some helpful conclusions about what a healthy marriage looks like. And when Genesis describes the woman as a helpmeet suitable, we should ask what Eve was created to help Adam with. What was she made suitable for? Before we can answer such questions about woman, we have to shed radical egalitarianism and examine more closely the preeminent man. What did God make Adam to be and do? Here also, Genesis provides us with the answer. For one thing, God made Adam to be his image bearer. For another, God put Adam in the garden to keep, to tend it, work it, and take care of it. And these two things taken together should elevate our appreciation for gardeners and cultivators of soil in general. But only after the making of woman does God give instructions to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it this too makes logical sense. Procreation is hardly an easy task without a breeding pair, and Adam would be incapable of managing it without help. Now I reckon here that even my referring to those two or married couples in general in such terms is sure to cause some to shift uncomfortably in their seats. But there you have it, and there is no avoiding it. The good Lord made this a core part of marriage, and I, for one, cannot leave it unattended In good conscience. So then, it would seem that in order to talk intelligently about marriage and to think rightly about it and to steward it well and productively, we have to build on this foundation that marriage was instituted by God in a certain context and for a certain purpose. Man was made to bear God's image and work the garden. Woman was made as an antidote to man's loneliness and to help the man, her husband. And together, the two were given the mandate to have children and spread out all over the globe. Whatever radical egalitarians say, it is no coincidence that God made Adam first, then made Eve. It was intentional on God's part, just like everything God does is intentional. But Eve was made because it was not good for man to be alone, and so she could help Adam in fulfilling the purpose for which God had made him. And Adam was made to reflect God's image and to attend to creation with authority and intentionality while perhaps not all at least a large portion of the purpose God made man for was to exercise dominion over the earth to fill it and subdue it to work the ground to reproduce himself and spread God's representation through all of creation but is this how we think of marriage is this how we treat the thing whether on the front end or in the thick of it is this how we think of ourselves and one another in relation to marriage? I think not, and it feels like putting things mildly to say so little and leave it at that. But of course we won't leave it at that, and we can't, and that's why I'm writing this book on marriage. I want us to remedy our misalignment rather than being content with it, firmly believing that a blessing for all parties concerned comes with a rectification of certain untruths we have come to believe as a matter of course, as though we could ever be liberated by believing lies about God and ourselves. The reality is entirely other. The most liberating thing possible is to know the truth of God's word, and the context of marriage is no exception. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, me Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado from my home office where I record all of my podcast episodes. This is episode 327 and also February 12th, 2022. And that little bit that I just read for you is my essay submission for Inglaterra Veritas we had our meeting last night, and discussed what we're reading, what we're writing, and generally speaking, how can we communicate the truth of God's Word in a way that transforms culture, in a way that transforms our application of our faith and our integration of our faith into every sphere. I very much enjoyed... Our session last night, and it got me thinking along the lines of some of what we discussed last night in the context of our even having the discussion, and also in the context of what my sons were working on downstairs, the importance of not just being alone, but being in alignment, being on task together, having a shared Purpose Having a shared vision and a goal is important. It is important that we be in community, be in relationship. Now, obviously, with what I'm writing here, my marriage book, I'm thinking especially about marriage. But you know that the topic of marriage is... Related to how we parent, how we're raised, the expectations that we grow up with as far as how we relate to our siblings or people in the community, and then when we grow up and we leave the house and we go and get a job, how we relate to our coworkers. when we go to church and we're involved there, how we relate to the people that we're going to church with, our friendships, and maybe even our rivalries, the people we don't get along with and the people we do get along with, the people we gravitate towards and the people we avoid like the plague. All of it is predicated on marriage. If not, then how do we have all of these people? Where do all of these people come from? Either biologically, physically, or emotionally, spiritually, spiritually relationally, culturally. Where do these people come from? They have an origin. They have a source. Just like when you see water running down a mountainside, that water came from someplace. People come from someplace. And marriage does not just create physical matter. There's a mystery to how much of What we think of as ourselves is spiritual, and how much is physical. There's a mystery to that. And I don't mean we know nothing, but I mean there is a profound unknown quality to how God creates the soul of man. There's a profound mystery where that process is behind a veil for us. It is outside of the scope of materialistic explorations because there is something distinctly different about the soul. And purely materialistic people will say it's all just lights and clockwork. What we think of as the soul is not really the soul. It's just synapses and... Electricity and chemistry, and it's all just physical matter. There's nothing more to it. I don't agree. I don't agree. I can't hold that position as a Christian. There is a duality to our personhood. Now, we should not suppose that the physical part of us is good and the mental, emotional, spiritual part of us is bad. Conversely, we should not believe that the mental, spiritual, emotional part of us is good and the physical is bad. God made all of the above. And what is it that Jesus says is the first and greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That is all of your being. Every aspect of your being. But that's also a way of Jesus outlining the four corners of our personhood as God created us. We have these dimensions to our personhood. Those dimensions may have particular, unique qualities and combinations of qualities to us by God's design. I believe that's the case. Not just for who we are in a vacuum, but particularly who we are in our context, in our point, on the number line, on the timeline, in history... Our time and place in combination with these other traits is a UID. It's a unique identifying document. And it's all written in our genetics. And If you look at the code, think of this like computer programming. If we are computers, God wrote the original source code and he wrote, our source code in Adam and then he extracted a portion of that source code to make Eve and he made their source code such that when they become one flesh they create more of themselves and the way in which they partnered together male and female created in God's image to create additional image bearers of the Almighty The way in which each of them participates in that is different. And even in that, we should wonder, not just think about, not just consider, but wonder at why, and not for no purpose, and not to complain, and not to murmur, and not to grumble, not to be a know-nothing, and not to air some kind of a grievance against the Almighty, but to genuinely wonder at to marvel at, to be in awe of what purpose the Lord has. And I was just listening to this really, really interesting podcast episode on Glenn Beck's program. And I don't often listen to Glenn Beck. I do when my friend Jeff Jorgensen sends me links to his podcast. Jeff listens to the Glenn Beck program quite a lot. And so when Jeff sends me a link to Glenn Beck's program. I go and I check it out. More so because I want to be conversant with my friend Jeff. I don't want to be rude. But also because I'm interested in why is this interesting to him? Right? Very often, I think always, but I'll say very often to hedge my bets, I end up finding what Glenn Beck has to say interesting as well. And this time I listened to Glenn Beck's program it was not because somebody sent me a link like my buddy Jeff I got a notification because I do subscribe to his podcast I just ignore the notifications most of the time if you do that with my content as well I'm in no I'm in no position to judge I'm in no place to judge you I know that not everybody listens to every episode you probably wait for the notification and then you look at the title and you think oh that sounds interesting to me i Curious what Garrett has to say about that. And so you tune in. And sometimes you're like, I'm not curious what Garrett has to say about that. So you don't tune in. So in this case, I was drawn this morning to listen to Glenn Beck's program as he is talking with Andrew Clavin. Andrew Clavin is somebody I do listen to proactively. Nobody ever sent me an Andrew Clavin link. I Stumbled across him when the Daily Wire really came into its own and started listening to Andrew Klavan. I really enjoy his commentary. I don't always agree with his commentary. I would love to disagree on certain points if he could hear me through the iPhone or uh, computer, whichever I'm listening on, watching on. Uh, But I do enjoy him. I, I find him to be a thoughtful creative intentional uh, person I I think he's a genuine person and I can appreciate genuine disagreements with a genuine person but I think Glenn Beck and Andrew Cleveland are very different people uh, and I was curious so I tuned in and a very wide-ranging discussion as you might imagine covering literature covering gender and sexuality and god and how we relate to god and meaning and purpose and all this stuff right all of these things and an interesting observation and this is what keeps me coming back to Andrew Claven uh, not always that i agree but that i'm provoked to think deeply about a thing a topic subject in a way that I wouldn't have otherwise but for Andrew Clavin's contribution his uh, encouragement his being honest and genuine but one of the observations that Andrew Clavin shared with Glenn Beck and by extension audience, is that a lot of the trouble with the modern world, the modern way of thinking about humanity and sexuality and gender, is that it is an attempt at a racing woman. It is an attempt at a racing woman. And that that is profound. Uh, You know, radical egalitarianism is a problem. And it, I believe, starts with marriage. Just like earlier I was saying, I think that our way of relating together as co-workers and neighbors and fellow church members and friends and enemies and all the rest, it's all downstream of marriage. And not just where do we come from physically, Where do we come from emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, culturally, religiously? Who raised us? More to the point. Not just who birthed us, but who raised us, who trained us up, who led us by their example. Who advised us, who corrected us, who instructed us, who nurtured us, who helped to shape and mold us. And... Radical egalitarianism basically says, with regards to marriage, with regards to parenting, the woman has no value unless she is a man. Unless the woman is a man, she doesn't matter. And that is at the heart of this trouble with transgenderism right now. You could say, well, hey, wait a second, actually, all these men who are wanting to become women, shouldn't women be flattered? No. No. A perverse, twisted thing has happened where men, rather than going and finding a wife, finding the helpmeet suitable for them, and embracing the fact that they were born a male by God's design, and this Lovely Sheila over here was born a female. And so they're going to commit to her. And they're going to care for her. They're going to possess her as their wife. Love her. Raise a family with her. Provide for her. Protect her. Rather than that, they make a mockery of the woman. They make a mockery of the female by saying, oh, I can do that too. Watch. Just watch. And when we celebrate, when we as a society celebrate transgenders, and it seems like it's so often men wanting to identify as women, not so often women wanting to identify as men, which is curious. But when we celebrate men claiming that they are women, we are making a value judgment. We are making a truth claim or more to the point, an untruth claim about whether we value women. When we say that a woman has to be just like a man in order to have value in our eyes, we are making a truth claim about the value of women as designed. And that truth claim is that women are defective. Women will only be sufficient and adequate and worthy of our respect when they're men. And that's a hateful, ignorant, evil, wicked, ungodly, rebellious position to take. I'm going to play a little clip for you. And I find this song funny because it's ignorant, to be very clear. I find it funny because it's ignorant. And I think it was written tongue-in-cheek with full awareness that it is an ignorant song. And that's the idea, and yet it is helpful sometimes to bring ignorant things out into the open so that you can make fun of them and maybe have a cathartic experience purging their influence from your soul. But take a listen to this song from the famous popular musical My Fair Lady. And then we'll explore why I think it relates to this whole subject.
1: What in all in heaven can have prompted her to go? After such a triumph at the ball? What could have depressed her? What could have possessed her? I can't understand the wretch
2: at all. Higgins, I have an old school chum at the home office. Perhaps he can help. Think I'll give him a ring. Whitehall 7244, please.
1: But women are irrational. That's all there is to that. Their heads are full of cotton hay and rags. They're nothing but exasperating, irritating, vacillating, calculating, agitating, maddening and infuriating
2: hags. Yeah. Oh, I want to speak to Mr. Brewster Budgin, please. Bruce Yes, I'll wait. Pickering. Why
1: can't a woman be more like a man?
2: I beg your pardon?
1: Yes, why can't a woman be more like a man? Men are so
2: honest,
1: so thoroughly square, eternally noble, historically fair, who when you win will always give your back a pat. Why can't a woman be like that? Why does everyone do what the others do? Can't a woman learn to use a head? Why do they do everything their mothers do? Why don't they grow up? Well, like their father instead. Why can't a woman take after a man? Men are so pleasant, so easy to please. Whenever you're with them, you're always at ease. Would you be slighted if I didn't speak for hours? Of course not. Would you be livid if I had a drink or two? Nonsense. Would you be wounded if I never sent you flowers? Never. Well, why can't a woman be like you? One man in a million, may shout a bit. Now and then there's one with slight defects. One perhaps whose truthfulness you doubt a bit, but by and large, we are a marvelous sex. Why can't a woman take after a man? Because men are so friendly, good-natured and kind. A better companion you never will find. If I were hours late for dinner, would you bellow? Of course if not. If I forgot your silly birthday, would you fuss? Nonsense. Would you complain if I took out another fellow? Never. Well, why can't a woman be like us?
2: Oh, hello. Mr Brewster Budgin there? Yeah, there. Boozy. ha, <laughs> Boozy, you'll never, never guess who this is <laughs> You're quite right. Yes, it is. Good heavens. By George, what a memory. <laughs> How are you, Boozy? Mm, nice to hear your voice. What? Oh, don't say that. It is ready. 30 years, good heavens. You're quite right. Yes, oceans of water. Listen, listen, Boozy, I'll tell you why I rang up. Something rather unpleasant happened this end. Could I come and see you? Hmm. Well, I could, yes, now, straight away. Righto, good. Thank you, thank you. Goodbye, Boozy. Thank you very much. Oh, Mrs. Pierce, I'm going along to the Home Office.
1: Oh, I do hope you find her, Colonel Pickering. Mr Higgins will miss her.
2: Mr Higgins will miss her, eh? Blast, Mr Higgins. I'll miss her.
1: Pickering? Pickering? Oh, Mrs Piers? Yes, sir? Where's the Colonel? He's gone to the Home Office, sir. Oh, there you are. I'm disturbed and he runs for help. Now there's a good fellow. Mrs. Pierce, you're a woman. Why can't a woman be more like a man? Men are so decent, such regular chaps, ready to help you through any mishaps, ready to buck you up whenever you are glum. Why can't a woman be a chum? Why is thinking something women never do? I mean, why is logic never even tried? Straightening up their hair is all they ever do. Why don't they straighten up the mess that's inside? Why can't a woman behave like a man? If I was a woman who'd been to a ball, been hailed as a princess by one and by all, would I start weeping like a bathtub overflowing? Or carry on as if my home were in a tree? Would I run off and never tell me where I'm going? Why
0: can't a woman be like me? And yeah, <laughs> uh, oh, Professor Higgins, why can't a woman be more like me? <laughs> uh, but of course, that is delightful. And horrifying all at the same time. It's a bit of dark humor. And it does highlight what it is that I'm trying to convey, trying to communicate. It's an ignorant position to take. And more to the point, I would pull in here some of what the Apostle Paul writes in Corinthians about how not all the members of a church, let's say, the body of Christ. Not all the members of the body of Christ are possessing the same gifts. You have some that he likens to a physical body. Some are hands. Some are feet. Some are mouths. Some are ears. Some are these different parts of the body that have different purposes. And how absurd, how absurd would it be if the eye said to the toe, because you're not an eye, you are nothing, I don't need you, and be gone with you. How absurd would it be if the ear sang a song, if ears could sing, but of course they can't because they're ears. They could hear a song, but if the ear sang a song to your pinky finger about how that pinky finger really should be more like the ear, how absurd would that be? Of course, it would just be the height of absurdity, And yet, that's the point. That's the point that the Apostle Paul makes to the church in Corinth in the New Testament. God intentionally gives different gifts, spiritual gifts, to the different members of the body of Christ so that there is cooperation. There is supposed to be independence. There is supposed to be a certain measure of hey, provide for your own self, provide for the needs of your own household. But there's also supposed to be an aspect of mutual dependence. It's both and. And it needs to be in measure, and it needs to be from a position of, am I honoring God in this way, in the way that I conduct my affairs and, and ask for help when I ask for help, or say, no, I can do this on my own when I say that instead but at the most basic level, when God says it's not good that the man should be alone, I'll make a help made suitable for him, a couple of things should occur to us. When God says it's not good that the man should be alone, God made a need and then he filled that need. And I'll loop in Jeremiah Burroughs and the rare jewel of Christian contentment here. God could have made Adam and Eve at the exact same time. He he could have. There's nothing which would bar or prevent the Almighty from doing that. He didn't. And I think at least part of the reason why he didn't, it was not just to establish a hierarchy, but it was also on the flip side to create an appreciation in the heart of man. Now, Think about this with me for just a moment. Based on God having made man first and then observed, it's not good that the man should be alone. I'll make a helpmeet suitable for him. And, and based on God causing the man to fall into a deep sleep and then taking the rib out and forming a woman, the woman, Eve, his woman, Adam's woman, based on God having done that and then waking Adam up and then bringing the two together and God was the first matchmaker, he's the best and the greatest. There will never be a matchmaker as good, (laughs) as competent, as trustworthy, as reliable as the Lord. But what is the response? What is the reaction from Adam? It is... At last. (laughs) Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. The, The animals have their pairs. They have their other halves. Adam was without. And this is to say as well that having pets is not a good substitute for a relationship with people. It wasn't sufficient for Adam, and it's not sufficient for us. If we replace our relationships with people by buying pets and having relationships with animals. Uh, there's something there's something broken in our understanding of who we are, where we come from, why we're here, why God made us, what his intention is for us. There's something broken there. And I, I don't say that to guilt trip anybody. I say that to encourage us to second guess and question whether perhaps we have misapprehended, perhaps we miss out on the fullness and the richness of what God created us for. God created us for a relationship with himself. God is not a she, by the way. God is a he. He's always identified in his word, in his communication to us as he. But God created us for a relationship with himself and God created us for a relationship with one another. And the most foundational, fundamental, primary relationship type that God made us for is marriage. And in the context of marriage, it would seem to me as though on the one hand, God did create Adam first to communicate to the woman that the man is the head. The man is the leader. He is the authority. And authority is not a dirty word. It's not a bad word. It's not an ugly thing. It's a beautiful thing. Actually, it's a protective and fruitful and blessed thing. Authority is a blessing from God. Only we have to exercise it and relate to it as God lays out for us. And, and in the context of God having ultimate authority, those who are in authority humanly speaking, whether that's husbands or fathers or rulers of peoples, only have that authority according to Romans chapter 13 because they were given that authority by God, which is to say God has authority over those authorities. And what is it that God is described as? He's God of gods. So even when we're talking about gods, lowercase g, God is their God. The pagans worship God. Zeus and Odin and Thoth and Osiris, for instance. And guess who those gods bow to? Those gods bow to the almighty God of gods. And we may serve kings, whether you want to call them prime ministers or emperors or presidents or what have you. We, we serve earthly kings and rulers of people And yet, who is it that is their king, whether they regard him as such? It's God. And all of the breakdowns in how exercising authority translates into either protection and provision and leadership and guidance and green pastures or the valley of the shadow of death has to do with whether we are relating to God as the ultimate authority But God creating Adam first serves a dual purpose, I believe. For one thing, it establishes for the woman that your husband is your authority. He's your primary authority in the context of God having ultimate authority. And those two things are not in competition or contradiction necessarily. and They shouldn't be. They must not be we can't afford for them to be. But on the flip side too, there's an appreciation that God clearly wants Adam to have. Everything God does is intentional and by design. He does not make accidents. He is purposeful and perfect in his purposes and unchangeable in the character of his purposes. Which is to say, since it is impossible for God's purpose to change, what his purpose was in Eden for the man and his wife should instruct us on his purpose for us in the context of marriage. And yes, God's purpose is that wives submit to their husbands in all things as unto the Lord. But so also his purpose for the man is to be eager to be appreciative, to be understanding the gift that his wife is. You can't read Adam's reaction when he's introduced to Eve except as one of excitement, animation, joy, happiness, sweetness. And also... Even as he recognizes that she is other, she is one and the same. For this reason, a man should leave his father and mother and become one flesh with his wife. They're one person and yet they're two people. And that is dynamic. And that is beautiful. And that is a study in contrasts and compliments, and cooperation. And that has the potential to be fruitful, to bear good fruit. And yet, if we sing songs, (laughs) like, why can't a woman be more like a man? And then we celebrate men pretending to be women. We are participating in a rebellion against God having made woman intentionally, on purpose, in a certain way, for a certain purpose. We are basically accusing God of having made a mistake. You made a mistake in the way that you made women. No, 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 no. They're not fundamentally a mess. But if your host of expectations are that women are going to be exactly like men... Where did you get that? Where did that come from? Why would you think that women should be just like men in all regards? Why? You didn't get it from God's word. And too often what we do is we get these assumptions and these presuppositions from godless philosophers and ungodly traditions and a wicked culture that is increasingly neo-pagan Not just secular, but neo-pagan. And yet we have innovated on the worst follies that the pagans entertained. And even the pagans would blush at how degenerate we have enabled ourselves to be through technology. We prop up this folly. And we destroy people for calling it what it is. It's not philosophy, actually. Philosophy is the love of wisdom. But if you wanna know whether this is philosophical, ask yourself, what happens to people who talk some damn sense in this space? What happens to them when they actually are speaking wisdom and wise counsel with regards to gender and sexuality and God's purpose for marriage, how we express ourselves, how we identify ourselves, how we style our lives. Look at what happens. Those people who talk some sense, who give wise counsel, who dare to be honest and say that the emperor has no clothes are vilified as hateful. No, 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 no. Or yes, but along very specific narrow lines If you want to call me hateful, I will tell you what I hate. I hate people being destroyed. I hate people destroying themselves and one another. I do hate that. I hate sin and falsehood and folly. And I hate people coveting what was not given to them. I hate grumbling and murmuring against God as though we are wiser than God. I hate that because I know that at the end of the road, that is death. I hate that. But inversely, I love life. And the Christian has to love life. And if you love life as a Christian, you have to be earnestly meditative on how life depends on our relationship with God, on His terms, our relationship to one another on his terms, our relationship to the creation on his terms. There is no other way. There is no other way to live life. And I love that. And I'm content with that. And I rejoice in that because Paul says in Corinthians that love rejoices with the truth. I think it's a true and beautiful and good thing That Adam reacts the way that he does when he's introduced to Eve. So also, I think it's a beautiful thing when Eve helps Adam. When Eve cures his loneliness and in that she has a purpose and she's content in that. And I find it beautiful when the two become one flesh and they are fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it together as image bearers of the almighty, I think that is good and true and beautiful. And I love it. And that's what marriage is about. And this is why we got married, because we believe that and because imperfect though we are imperfect, though our circumstances are, we need to live that out. We don't participate in the war on women, the actual war on women is not what the democrats have said the radical egalitarians the neo-pagans the godless have said the godless have told you that the war on women is republicans trying to outlaw abortion now the war on women is the godless saying that a woman only has value if she is a man and what is it that they're celebrating as the culmination of this folly when women are actually biological males with long hair. Maybe some surgery to modify their appearance, to androgynize their appearance. It's a mockery of women because some people hate God and they participate in this satanic effort which is as old as the temptation of Eve in the garden. Isn't it interesting that the serpent comes to Eve to destroy her? The serpent wants to deceive her, to destroy her, and to basically turn her purpose, her created purpose, to help her husband on its head. Instead of Eve helping Adam, as God created her, Eve will give some of the fruit to her husband and he'll eat it as well. And who knows why he did that. He knew better. It was an abdication on his part. His temptation was not just to disobey God in eating the forbidden fruit. It was also to abdicate his responsibility to protect his wife, to lead his wife. And yet here we are. And the good news is that However broken we are, and the creation is, due to the fall, God's purpose is unchangeable. The character of his purpose is unchangeable. And I am persuaded that God still has a good purpose so long as we have breath in our lungs. He has a good purpose for us, but we have to ask him what it is. And we ask him what it is by studying his word. That's why we have the scriptures And this is why we got married. Stay tuned for more on this subject. Not every episode of this podcast is going to be about marriage and gender and sexuality. But as I'm writing this book, I will be talking a lot in the coming months about those topics because they will be on my mind. They have to be in order to write the book. As always...